Foster Care Nation. Listen up. We have some exciting news to share. We're going to offer up our first ever webinar. If you've ever been curious about what it takes to be a foster parent and help kids in hard places, join us on February 18th at 5 p.m. Central for our free no obligation webinar. We're going to share our hard-earned knowledge and experience with anyone who has ever wondered about helping kids from hard places. If you're interested, go to fostercarenation.com and sign up for our newsletter. This is where you can get the details and the links to join us so that you'll be able to ask any questions you have in the question and answer section. Now, I know what you're thinking. Webinar. A free, no obligation webinar. It sounds like there's a sales pitch at the end. I've listened to a lot of webinars, guys. I know what you're thinking. I don't have anything to sell you. I don't have anything to sell you. I promise I don't have anything to sell you today. But what we are going to do is try and support you and help you join us in our mission to help kids. And if that's what you're interested in, come see us. I promise you, we're not selling anything today. We're just going to offer up our experience, our knowledge, and trying to help some people who are interested in helping kids. As you can tell in the background, I have some kids. They're here. They're noisy. And I'm not even going to try and quiet them down at this time because I am not going to get that done. They're wound up out there, but you know what? They're happy. And that's what we're looking for. We're just trying to provide a safe place for kids, trying to help them through some of their traumas, some of their things, and make this world a better place. And if you want to join us on that mission, we welcome you to show up February 18th at 5 p.m. Central. Like I said, fostercarenation.com. Sign up for the newsletter, and that's where you'll have all the information come out. Thank you so much. Foster Care Nation. Listen up. This is Foster Care and I'm Paralyzed Terminator. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and Amanda. Today we're talking with the author Robert P. K. Mooney. Rob Mooney has a book called A Foster Kid's Road to Success. And I have heard Rob talk on quite a few podcasts and read through his story. And my gosh, do you have a, a wildly interesting story that hopefully can help a lot of people here today. Cool. Well, thank you very much. I hope so. We're great, glad to have you here, man. I appreciate you showing up and, and being willing to come out and, and tell your story here as well. And I also want to make sure that I tell you, we appreciate you sending us a copy of the book for us and for the kids as well, because, man, we've got a lot of kids and what? Over half. Yeah, over half of our <laughs> kids have come through the foster care system. Yeah. And this is the stuff they need they need to know about. And it's, I can tell them this all day long. And this is the, the parent perspective problem is that as dad, there are th certain things you're just not going to hear from me because you think you know more than me. <laughs> and that's, that's what happens with kids. But yeah. to have somebody who's walked that road, you know, and this is a podcast. So obviously you're going to have a hard time seeing what's going on here. But Rob's sitting here wearing a shirt that says foster kid right on it because he has that, that story. He, he grew up through the foster care system. Rob was also, him and his wife were foster parents as well. So you've got a really unique uh, perspective that most people will not have. Yeah, I, I, th I think so. Um, I mean, you know, so I, I started in the foster care system when I was uh, six years old. 
Uh, and between the time I was six and 18, I changed homes 20 times. Uh, and uh, you, when you age out of the foster care system, there isn't a lot that's expected of, of kids because the statistics are really, really grim. Uh, and, and so what I wanted to do with the foster kids road to success, uh, is, is help these kids that are likely to age out. Uh, you know, once, you know, you've been in the system for a while, you get past 14, uh, feels like your adoptability kind of drops down. Uh, I want these kids to know that there can be a, a life full of, of happiness, uh, meaning and real, uh, human connections, uh, after they leave the system. Uh, when a good chunk of their life, they haven't had those things. Uh, so that's the intent of the book. It was written directly to them, foster kid to foster kid. Uh, and uh, hopefully it does some good. I'm sure it will do some good today because um, there's a lot of people listening. And you have a perspective that most of us as foster parents don't have. And that's understanding what it's like going through the system. And you went through your own, your own set of traumas as a kid. And that's one of the things that we're just now really getting to in science is understanding how that trauma really affects a kid. And, and as I look through through your book and listen through some of the stuff that you've talked to on other podcasts and other outlets, man, you had a tough go of it, especially towards the beginning. But I have yeah. to say that you had a really unique character quality in you somewhere that had to have been inborn because I read this story and I, I heard you talking about this whole like marathon thing. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you, if you see me run, buddy, you better follow me. There's a bear behind me. Yeah, right, right. Because if I'm running, it's because there's something I can't kill behind me. I'm still not going to go that far. I'm not going to run 26 miles to get away from the bear. But you did that marathon at six years old? Yeah. Yeah, at six. Yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy. I was... Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, so I, I lived in Hawaii. I was born in Hawaii, and uh, I, I saw one Sunday morning just these thousands of people running. And I said to my father, I was like, what are these people running from? You know, I'm not sure if it's like the zombie apocalypse or whatever. Uh, people are just running. I didn't know what a marathon was, so he tells me it's a marathon, which meant nothing to me. And I'm like, all right, well, what's a marathon? Because I'm six, right? Uh, I, actually, I apologize. I'm five at the time. I'm five years old. Wow. And uh, so he explains to me that it is a, it's a, it's a 26 mile race. Uh, and my five-year-old reaction to that was I can do that. I, I don't know why uh, and completely unrealistic, uh, but I was like, yeah, I, I, I can do that. And so I, I convinced my older brother and sister, uh, they were seven and nine at the time. Uh, and I just said, Hey, let's uh, let's go run this marathon uh, it turns out it was an annual thing every December. And uh, so, so yeah, we, uh, we started training. That's what, about all we knew is that we needed to train. Uh, I'd, I'd seen the film Rocky, Sylvester Stone's Rocky, you know, so you got to go, you know, train. And, <laughs> and uh, our training regimen uh, consisted of a three-mile, you know, route, one and a half miles up the mountain where we lived, and then a mile and a half back down. That was it. That, that was it. And, that, and it turns out that's like no way to train for a marathon, but I didn't know that. Um, and, uh, and so what we did, we did sprint like the last hundred yards, because I don't know if you remember, like whenever Rocky was finishing up, he'd always be sprinting at the very end, whether it's sprinting up the stairs, sprinting on the beach, whatever. Uh, and so that's what we did. We sprinted and I always lost 
because I was five and my brother and sister were seven and nine. And uh, my father kind of, uh, he fancied him a jo- himself a jogger and he thought it was cute that his kids thought they could do this. And so he kind of humored us and would run with us for a little bit. Uh, but he had some very significant personal issues. And so he soon dropped out, but I kept doing it. I kept training, you know, mile and a half up the, the mountain, a mile and a half down. And, um, and uh, yeah, so I did that for a year. Uh, sometimes my siblings would go with me. Uh, sometimes my mom would drive the station wagon behind uh, to make sure I was safe. Other times she was too sick to to come along. And so I just did it on my own. And uh, yeah, a year later when I was six, um, race day came along and uh, ran the marathon with my older brother and uh, my older sister. And my father, it was funny. Um, the night before the race, my mom was gone way past dark, which was not like her at all. And I was worried, like, where in the world is my, you know, where's my mom? Because uh, she's usually not out this late. And um, she shows up way past the time I should be going to bed because we got to wake up at like four o'clock in the morning to get to the start of the race uh, early in the morning in downtown Honolulu. And the reason she was out is because she was out getting us matching uniforms. You know, some some red runner shorts, uh, white tube socks with red red stripes along the top, and these white shirts with a foam lettering that said Mooney Bunch on it. And that's where she was. And my, my father was like, oh, my gosh, that's I said I'd run this race. Holy crap. And uh, so that's what it was. You know, we went and we started. We ran that race. And um, yeah, it's, it's crazy because there, there's a six-year-old has no business running a marathon, especially not a six-year-old who only run had ever run like three miles. We did push-ups and sit-ups and those sorts of things, uh, the things that you know you did in the '80s to get in shape. And um, anyway, but yeah, so we ran, and everyone towered over me because there's there's not there isn't a six-year-old division, right? There's yeah. just <laughs> adults all, all over the place, and uh, the gun goes off. And we all start running and I just, I've got to take two, two and a half steps for every step of my father's. And uh, soon my 10 year old and eight year old siblings outpace me and me, my six little six year old, little malnourished body just kind of just kept plugging along and three miles turned into five, turned into 10, uh, 15. And, um, and it was mile 20 when my body, uh, you know, told myself what my, my brain wouldn't. Right. And that was just kid. You're done. You're, you're done. Um, this is ridiculous. And my body seized up. I don't know if you've ever gotten any cramps, uh, that are like serious, deep, deep cramps, but my hamstrings, my quads, my calves all completely seized up. And I just, I literally, I ate the pavement, uh, and, uh, just crash and burn. And by that time in the race, there were enough you know, it was long enough. I wasn't sending any records. Right. So we are well, you were in the six-year-old division. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was actually. Um, and uh, anyway, they, uh, they started letting, letting traffic through and this rusty Brown, you know, pickup truck with a couple of local boys came in. They see this little kid just, you know, crying on the side of the road. Uh, it's like, Hey kid, you want to ride? And my father stood up and he was like, you know, 20 miles is really good. Let's call it a day. And I just said, no, I, I think I'm going to finish. Uh, for about 20 minutes before these guys came by, my father held me on his lap and just rubbed my legs, just kind of bent my legs, you know, back and forth, rubbed out the, the knots in my hamstrings and my quads so that I could start moving them. again. I couldn't move them. I couldn't. 
extend my leg. I couldn't, you know, retract my leg either which way, just because of the pain was so bad. Uh, but after about 20, 20 minutes, 25 minutes of him just pull, you know, manually forcing them open and closed and rubbing them open and closed, I got to the point where I could, I could uh, move them on my own again. And uh, that's when these, these local boys came uh, in their truck to ask if I wanted a ride. And uh, my response to them was, no, I think I'll finish. So I stood up and I just kept running. Um, and I, I seriously, I don't know why. And I, I can't say that I really know that kid, um, but I'm grateful that he did because when I was a hundred yards away from the finish line, I started sprinting. My father who hadn't been training with me completely forgot that's what I did. And I <laughs> left him behind. And, and so in the book, uh, I, there's a picture of me crossing the finish line and, and you'll see, uh, you know, you know, my father, I think you can see my father in the background trying to catch up uh, at the end. And, um, and it's kind of uh, interesting. I don't know if you know what lays are, but in, in Hawaii, they make these flowers, mm -hmm. flower necklaces, right? These lays. Right. As I was finishing, I wasn't so far into the race that people around the finish line were gone, right? There were still lots of spectators and finishers. I wasn't the last person to finish. Uh, there were about 50 wow. people that finished behind me. Um, and, but as I was coming and finishing this race, these people see this little kid and literally people crying and I'm not understanding why came and just put these lays over me. So as I, I'm trying to finish this race and people are, you know, what the freak are you guys doing? I don't know. Uh, and I'm just, just <laughs> You're trying to have your Rocky moment. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I crossed the finish line and in the book, you'll see uh, a picture. I've got these lays that are far too big for a six-year-old because these were adults who saw this and, and, and put it on. And, um, and so, yeah, so I, I finished the race and I, I was the youngest uh, person to ever finish it um, at, at, at six years old. And, and I share that story uh, with, uh, with the kids who read my book, the, the youth that read my book. Uh, and it's under a chapter of know that you can do it. Know you can do it. And, and the reason I share that, it's a principle they have to know because they know, they've been told the statistics are stacked against them. They know that a huge chunk of them that age out, they're going to be homeless instantly. Uh, and by the time they're 24, most of them will have experienced homelessness, uh, incarceration, like pregnancies, all these sorts of things uh, that lead to, to difficult life events and make it difficult to lead a successful and, and happy life. Uh, those are all things that are the realities for these kids that age out. Nevertheless, I tell them, you got to know you can do hard things. Why could I, as a six-year-old, do that? And the reality is I was able to do it because I didn't know that I couldn't, right? Yeah. There, there, there was no reason for me to think I couldn't do that. I had no idea how long one mile was, let alone how long 26 miles were. And so even though the odds were horribly stacked against me, I didn't know that I couldn't do it. And so I need these kids to know, I need them to know that you can do it regardless if the odds are against you, regardless if other people tell you that you can't do it, they need to know you can. Whatever your it is, they need to know that they can do it, whatever it is. And so I encourage the kids to, to find their it, uh, quote unquote, it, whatever it may be, uh, you know, college, uh, a profession in the arts, a prof some sort of mean, you know, gainful employment, a family, whatever their it is. I need them to know and believe to their core that they can do it because if a six-year-old, a six-year-old with no training, no realistic training 
can finish a marathon, they can do something uh, like have a family, have meaningful human connection, uh, whatever the case may be. So that's why I share that story uh, in the first chapter of the book. Hey there, Foster Care Nation. We'd like to take a quick minute to step out of the podcast here and ask you guys for a little bit of support. If you could share an episode with people, friends, in a group, with family, anywhere where there's somebody who would like to hear this. Also, if you'd like to join us and support our mission, a couple dollars a month would be really helpful. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash fostercarenation. Now back to the show. Yeah, I think it's a beautiful picture of of sometimes it comes down to just being dumb enough to not know that you can and or maybe it's just not believing everybody else who tells you you can't yeah exactly i'm sure people told me that a six-year-old a five-year-old has no business uh doing that uh and thankfully i promptly ignored them or forgot about it and so i i tell these kids don't let anyone tell you you can't if someone does and then inevitably they will ignore them forget about it especially if that person is you. If, if you tell yourself, I can't do it, you know what? You don't know what you're talking about. You can do it. Uh, ignore yourself and, uh, and move forward. So now you walk through, after that, you, you walk through a lot of trauma and struggles as, as a kid going up into the teenage years, you know, and I read through some of the struggles you had with your dad, you know, because I, I think we all had some struggles with our dad. Right. I mean, I, in full disclosure, me and my dad were really close. We got along great. We still had our fair share of struggles and my sure. dad was a good dude. You know, my dad, my dad was, was the police officer who showed up at your house when, when children's division called for help. Right. I, that was the guy who showed up was my dad, but yeah. we still had our fair share of struggles. Sure. And, and you, you walked through, through a lot of, of problems with that. And man, at that age, you, you had been in care already for a while, right? No, no. So that was actually uh, two months before we went into to care for the first time. Uh, and so uh, my, my family, uh, my family of origin, uh, we had seven full biological siblings. I was the third of those seven. Um, my mother, her two children from her first marriage uh, lived with us until they could, as soon as they could get out of Dodge, they took off because it wasn't a great situation. So as adults, they took off as quickly as they could. Uh, Two children from my father's first marriage stayed with his uh, his first wife. I didn't uh, see them much, uh, but uh, there there was a, a lot of issues there. A lot of mental health issues, uh, both on my mother's side and my father's side, led to a lot of neglect and a lot of abuse. Uh, you know, physical abuse uh, that, that that left you know physical uh, or sorry emotional scars for sure and, and physical scars uh, as well. Uh, one of the things I I try to help these kids understand is that they do have a power to choose. And the biggest thing they get to choose is their own identity. Um, you know, uh, as we learn about uh, the effect of childhood trauma uh, and, and, and how much it can affect uh, a growing child's brain, we look at their ACE scores uh, is something that a lot of people in the system are familiar with adverse childhood experiences. Uh, and you get ranked on a scale of zero to 10, uh, 10 being, you know, just more trauma than we should, uh, you should be experiencing, um, for sure. And what it can do, uh, I, I, me and my siblings, uh, my older siblings anyway. So my sister, my brother, and I, uh, we all scored at nines, nine on, on the A scale. Wow. Um, and, and that, that leaves a scar. And, and as a result, you feel like your path is dictated. 
you feel like you can only be reactionary uh, with that kind of trauma. But what I try to help kids understand is they can choose uh, whatever they want. They still have that ability to choose. Uh, Sometimes you have to go and choose to get help to fully unlock your power of choice. Uh, but they've got to choose that first and foremost, that their own identity. Um, I have a scar across my cheek. Um, it's, it's faded uh, over time. Uh, you can't see it. It's, it's quite deep an imp- impression that comes across my face. I don't know if you can see that uh, you know, through the camera, uh, but, but comes across my face. And uh, it's uh, as a result of my father's beating. Uh, he kicked me across, uh, you know, down the hall and, and I cut my face on something on the hall and that's left a gash, a physical reminder, uh, of, of what happened, you know, and every day I see that it's there and I'm shaving, uh, every, every morning it's there. My, my razor goes across it and it could be a token of my victimhood. Um, I choose for it not to be, uh, I choose for it to just, just be there. It's, it's part of me. It's part of my story, um, but it never got to define me. Uh, and I got to choose who I was going to be. Now, I didn't figure that out for myself until I was, a, you know, a, you know, an older teenager. Uh, but thankfully, I figured it out because some, some of these kids, they never figure that out. Their victimhood is their entire reality. Uh, and, and they choose for that to be, uh, be what defines them. Uh, and it's very, very difficult to be an agent of, of success for yourself if you have let the abuse, the trauma, the neglect, uh, just the, the difficulty of moving from home to home, be your reality, to be your identity, uh, and let, let all of your actions be mere reactions from what you went through. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now you mentioned in the book that you had moved to uh, Utah at one point, which I'm not an expert on either Hawaii or Utah, but I don't think you need to be to know that that's got to be a culture shift. Huge. It sucked. I mean, listen, (laughs) uh, Utah is home now, right? Uh, I remember when I hit, I moved on my eighth birthday. Uh, It was happy birthday. You're moving to Utah. My mother was originally from Utah, and before she died, I'd been in state's care for a couple of years, and before she died, she asked the state to move her children to Utah with the hopes of you know, perhaps her family being an influence or the like, um, and so we, we moved to, the state moved us to Utah. Uh, she died, let's see, uh, eight months later. Uh, is when she when she passed away, and then we just you know kind of bounced around there. And when I was sixteen, it was my sixteenth birthday, and I realized I'd been in Utah for half of my life. It was it was like sobering. It's like I've 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 been in Utah. I like Utah is home now. Um, Hawaii, I can't really claim that. I've been here longer, and um, and that was that was a big deal for me. Big big deal for me. But I've grown to love it. So. Uh, I, I've had opportunities to go other places and I've chosen to come back to Utah. So uh, it was a big shock, huge shock, weather shock. First time seeing snow blew my mind, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but it, it's, it's home now. Well, I asked that question because a lot of kids deal with the, you know, an interracial placements as far as the foster placement or adoptive placements. And it's, it's kind of a similar thing, right? Because, People are completely different, I'm going to assume, in Hawaii than what you're going to meet in Utah. Yes, actually. No, that's exactly right. And I, I don't share this experience in, in my book. 
Um, uh, again, my book's not intended to be a memoir. Uh, it's just here are these principles, kids, that you need to apply in your life, and here's how I learned them. Uh, but yeah, when I got to Utah, my first placement, uh, kids in Hawaii speak differently than they do on the mainland. Uh, we speak, you know, there's the South, they've got their, you know, kind of own dialect, right? In Hawaii, the kids, especially, you know, lower income, you know, actually it's everybody uh, speaks in a bit of uh, a tongue called pigeon, right? It's a mixture of Hawaiian and English. And, uh, you know, people on the mainland thought it was quite uncouth. And so my, my foster parents, uh, every time they caught me speaking pigeon, they would, they whack me, they slapped me across the face uh, to encourage me to not speak pigeon, like a, a dog who, you know, you peed inside, you know, you just, you know, whatever, uh, was that, that the thought. And so, yeah, I got whacked around by my foster parents it, because of that cultural difference that you know, we don't speak that way. We don't speak that way when you're, you know, you're speaking with a, a strange dialect using a slang that they're not used to. Uh, there was a substantial culture shock there. Well, I bet. I bet. And, I, you know, of course, I don't know what, what the rules were in 1980-something or 1990-something, but I'm assuming yeah. they probably weren't supposed to be smacking you around. No, no, probably not so much. Uh, there are, I had some amazing foster parents, absolutely amazing. And uh, my book is one of my, the, the first on the dedication page, I, I, I'm ded- dedicating it to the amazing people who took me in and my siblings in. Because uh, we were a lot to handle. Uh, nevertheless, I do understand that there are are uh, are some that are you know less less suited for dealing with these kids from hard places, and as a result, uh, there is sometimes uh, unfortunately additional uh, abuse or trauma that comes uh, in, in the system. I think that's getting less and less, um, but uh, there's a number of places where that's that still happens. I sure hope it's getting less and less. It's one of the things that, that always, always just kills me to hear these horrible stories. You know, I, I troll a lot of Facebook groups and stuff looking for, for stories and people who want to talk. And, and I see a lot of these stories of kids who were in foster care or adoption who were, who were in some pretty horrible places. Yeah. And if you go back a ways, I, <clears throat> I believe we have an episode. It was with Heather, Heather Marie, I think. Um, but she talks about some of the absolute trauma that she dealt with, you know, physical abuse, mental abuse, sexual abuse in foster homes after having come out of a traumatic home life as well. Yeah. 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 I had one, I had uh, one that's when they found out uh, I had written this book, right. I, someone reached out to me and did this very public mea culpa. I I'm sorry for the way I treated you. I, 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 I wonder if, uh, this person thought like I was using my book to out people, uh, which was not the case at all at all. (laughs) And I was a little embarrassed that chose to do this very public form uh, for the the whole world to see. I am so sorry. I wish I would have treated you better. And my knee jerk reaction was not what I did. I didn't do this, but I thought it'd be really funny (laughs) to respond to it and say, Oh, you know, don't even worry about it. You know, I remember that time you locked my room uh, and I punched my, my fist through the door and I climbed out the window and you chased me on your bike and I went running down, got to my best friend's house, jumped over a fence. They let me in, locked the door behind you, kicked the door down to come after me. Remember how oh, those were good times? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no, no. Good, good people. There, there are, there were so many people. I mean, just think about it. Just the act of being able to open your heart open your home uh, to kids who frequently don't have a place in either uh, people's hearts or their homes. 
it's huge. My hat goes off uh, to foster parents everywhere. Um, and uh, I'm grateful for for the, the many people who took me and my siblings in uh, over the years. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's been a journey that we've we have definitely um we have benefited a lot from from some of those tough situations kids came out of and gave us some some wisdom and and experiences to learn from. Now you mentioned earlier that you lost your uh, your mother at a young age. Um what was she sick or or what was going on there? Yeah, she she was she was very sick. It was ultimately cancer and uh you know uh complications related to the, to the treatments of, of cancer and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, but she was very unhealthy for a good chunk of her adult life, uh, both mentally and physically. Uh, and so as, as a child, uh, she, you know, as um, when I was a child, she was frequently in, in, in bedridden. Um, but, uh, but you know, she was still my mother, you know, and, uh, it was, it was a very, very difficult thing. In fact, I would say for a good chunk of, of my childhood, I blamed the system on her death. I, I viewed someone, I think I'd heard once that stress can help cause cancer. I was like, what greater stress would there be than uh, a mother uh, who viewed it as her life's mission to have children? She truly did. Uh, she had a insane number of pregnancies and miscarriages and 10 made it to life. Uh, and and uh, and that, that was like her calling. I mean, to put in perspective, when we were first placed in care, we weren't uh, we didn't immediately go to foster care. Rather, we went to a battered women and children's shelter. And um, because she was a, a battered wife and we were battered children, and she was finally convinced to leave my father. Uh, and and so and she tried a couple of times. In fact, she actually moved us to the mainland when I was five. And then he convinced her to bring us all back. And we came back and, and continued on. Um, you know, that that happens, you know, battered wife syndrome, uh, battered partner syndrome, a little bit uh, going on. Uh, but so finally they convinced her to take us to the, you know, well, the police came, picked us up. We went to the battered women and children shelter and she was convinced to join us there. But within a couple of weeks, the, the, the caseworkers there, they're like, Oh, this woman, uh, she has her own issues and she cannot take care of these kids. And uh, so that's when we're put in state's custody. And as you know, when uh, cases open and kids are in, in custody, parents have limited contact ability. And that was brutal for her. So what did she do? Um, you know, she found out where I went to school, you know, the new school that I was going to, and she would come visit me at recess. And that's a major no-no. You're not, you're not allowed to do that even in 1984. And, um, and so what, what was her, her response? All right, well, if I can't, go visit him at recess on school property, then she would, she would come and be on outside of the fence. And I would see her in a, you know, rental car where she was uh, over there, you know, just dying for that connection with, with her child. And me as a six-year-old dying for that connection with my mother and just to hold her hand through the fence, you know, that was the kind of contact she would, she went you know, do whatever she could. Now that got her banned from visits uh, for an extended period of time. Uh, she got in trouble for that, but uh, that's, that's how difficult uh, losing her children was to her. And so when I learned that stress can contribute to cancer, I was really angry and I was like, oh man, you know, the state, they're the reason why uh, my mother died, uh, which, which wasn't the case. Um, but uh, but it, it, was, it was tough. 
Hey there, Foster Care Nation. If you'd like to find yourself in a group with like-minded people, head over to Facebook and you can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. We've got a group over there where we talk about foster care, we talk about adoption, and we talk about all the things related. If your podcast player allows it, you can also reach down and hit that subscribe button so you get notified every week when we put up uploads. Every Tuesday, a new episode comes out. We'd love to see you next week. Now back to the show. It, it was it was tough. Um, so so yeah, that was it. It was it was it was a, it was tough for all of my siblings. Uh, it was I would say especially traumatic for me uh, in a way because the state had decided that they were going to send us back. So we'd been in foster care for two years, and now we're going to go start going back. Uh, and because there were seven of us, they said we're just going to send them back one at a time. And I was the one to go back first. And I went for a weekend visit to kind of acclimate uh, with them, came back, and then the next week went to go move back for good. And then she died the next day. Uh, and so I was there at the hospital, um, still a just uh, a tough, tough experience for, for a little kid to, to lose his parents, uh, lose, lose his mother, uh, especially in the situation where we came from, where I did not view her as the perpetrator of, of my pain. Wow. Yeah, that's a tough one. That's a real tough one to to work through for a young kid, especially, you know, my, my own father lost his dad at, at about the same age. I think he was seven when his dad passed away from cancer as well. And so I know that that, that can be a real, a real struggle for kids. Did you, did, did you feel like that really contributed to some of your struggles as you grew up and you got older, you were placing that blame in other places and that the pain from having lost your mom, was that, was that a part of your problem? Not learning how to deal with that? Because I'm assuming that at seven years old, you probably didn't have a healthy view of that. No, that's right. That's right. So, so uh, yes, that, that contributed. Now here's the interesting thing that uh, foster parents need to understand is even though if you come from a background that sucks, there's no food, there's no supervision. When the supervision's there, you're getting beat up. Even from those circumstances, you, you still want to be there. And that's really hard for foster parents to really understand. It's like, why would you want to be in that sort of, a, of an environment? But we want to be there. I wanted to be with my siblings. I wanted to be with my father and my mother. And, and so my, my father uh, helped perpetrate the idea that our family was a victim of the system. Um, in fact, I was actually uh, just... Two weeks ago, I was at dinner with my my oldest sisters, my, my my older sister who was in foster care, her last foster home. You know, we reconnected through Facebook and we went to dinner. And uh, they they had said that man, we had a hard time really understanding why you were in foster care in the first place, not realizing what how bad it was was there because my father did such a good job of helping the kids understand that our family were being victimized. Uh, and so we wanted to be back together, you know? And so, so with my mom dying, uh, and with these, this, I, this fantasy that, that's, you know, we were all you know victims of the state. Yeah. You know, that, that led to a lot of, a lot of anger, uh, a lot of rebellious, uh, type activity. And, and it wasn't until, until I was uh, a bit older when I, I had an opportunity to, to leave foster care inappropriately um and then <laughs> go back uh, to, to be with my father as an older as an older kid 
Um, so his rights were terminated when I was nine. And so all my siblings then were now free for, you know, to be placed for adoption. And the four younger ones were all adopted into three different homes. Uh, and so two younger brothers, two, two younger sisters, the girls were adopted together and the boys were adopted into separate homes. And so they gained some form of permanency, whereas me, my older brother, my older sister, the ones that ran the marathon, uh, we continued to bounce around in the system. Uh, when my brother, my older brother was 16, he kind of fell off, off the grid from the system. He's one of those lost boys uh, because he went to go live with our father, who then by that time had moved to Utah, but was uh, several hundred miles to the south in southern Utah near St. George area you know, by Zion National Park. Uh, he had a borrowed trailer up there in the mountains, and he was just out there living with him, kind of. And um, I reconnected with him when I was 13. Uh, my foster parents at the time encouraged me to reconnect uh, because he was the link to my Native American ancestry. Uh, he's Native American uh, and uh, he's biracial. And uh, he was the, the connection there. They encouraged me to reunite. We did. And then they were having struggles of their own. And so rather than involve the state into a decision on what I should be doing with my life at 14, uh, 13 turning 14, they sanctioned me to go back and live with my father. <laughs> uh, also not uh, approved, but uh, you know, you hear these kids that are like off the, you know, where the system doesn't know where they are for a while. That was, that was me living with him up in the mountains outside of Hurricane, Utah. And, um, and it wasn't a good situation. It wasn't a good situation at all. And it was, I was grateful for the opportunity to be there because then with a little bit better perspective as a 14 year old, not great perspective, but better than a six year old, seven year old, eight year old, nine year old, I could see how bad it sucked to not have food, to not have heat, to not have uh, a stable environment with supervision and the like. Um, and so I could recognize for myself that, oh yeah, we, we, we left for good reason. We left for good reason. And uh, so that helped me get that understanding. Uh, but it also, it, I had the, a, one of those moments that could, what I call a watershed moment, mm -hmm. that where it really could have gone all sorts of bad or all sorts of good. And um, that's when I was living up in the mountains out there. So again, my father had a borrowed trailer in a place called Apple Valley. It was in the middle of nowhere, 15 miles outside of this little town called Hurricane. And it was just dust, really. Uh, some trailers, some homes on the side of the freeway on the way to Colorado City. Um, and and uh, it, it wasn't great. He spent most of his time um, at his wife's trailer. Uh, she lived down in the valley, you know, 15, 20 miles away. And he spent most of his time with her. Uh, and, um, and so it was just me and my brother. So 14 year old and 16 year old, just kind of fending for ourselves. Uh, again, you know, no heat. People think of Southern Utah that it's super warm not up in the mountains. It's not, you know, we got snow, it freezes at night. And um, we did have a coal stove uh, that wouldn't last the night. So my brother and I would trade off, uh, you know, putting coal in, into the stove to try to get some warmth in, in the trailer. Um, but uh, it, it wasn't great. And then my, my father dropped this bomb on me one day. Uh, we're driving home up the mountain in a borrowed car. And, and he said to me, he said, Robert, I think it's time for us to bring your younger siblings home. 
And I was like, what did you say? It's like, <laughs> you, we need to bring them home. And at this time, my brother, just younger than me, he was already adopted. I have no idea how he thought he was going to quote unquote, bring him home. And the other three were in the homes that would adopt them very shortly. So they had permanent homes. They had lives. They had futures. We didn't have Jack and he wanted to bring them to this. And, and so as politely as I could, I told him that was a really stupid idea. And he didn't like that. Not coming from a 14 year old punk. Uh, and so he started to argue. He wanted to know how I felt that way. And it got heated. He got, uh, his anger started to flare, his temper started to go and so did mine. And it finally culminated in this, this, uh, confrontation where we get to the, the trailer. I get out, I go, I go in the front door. He follows me in there. It goes into the front, uh, just inside of the front door of the trailer. And, and it, he says, just very heated, why do you think I don't beat you and your brother anymore? And my instant response, because I had no mind mouth filter at the time, was because we're bigger than you. And it was true that I was taller than he was. Hmm. He he was five, five, nine. I by that time I was already five foot eleven. Uh finished up just just under six one. My older brother, he was already six one at 16. Uh, and so we were both taller than he was. And I understand now that there's a difference between a active 14 year old athletic sort of kid and a full grown man, but I didn't really understand that at the time. And so my response was, you don't beat us because we're bigger than you. And so he using some choice language and words challenged me to make it physical because I think he had in his mind his warped mind that if I hit him first, somehow he'd be justified or something like that. And, uh, and so I was about to, I I don't think I'd ever backed down from a fight previously. Uh, and I was about to clock him and then just time stood still for me. And a thought came completely unbidden to my mind that said, you are about to hit your father. And for a moment I realized I didn't have to, He was literally telling me to everything in my being told me I should all the anger, all the rage. I, he would have deserved it. You know, like I said, my siblings and I have literal scars on our body. Maybe it'd be pretty good to give them a little bit back. Uh, And so even though he was literally telling me to do it, he was asking for it in a very literal way. And I truly wanted to deepen my soul. I realized I didn't have to. I had, I had a choice. I could choose to walk to the back of the trailer uh, where my room was. I could kick him in the nuts. I could turn around and walk away. I had options. I didn't have to do what uh, my reactive traumatic, traumatized self told me I had to do. And I chose to turn around and walk away. I walked out of the trailer, uh, went about a half mile or so to a friend that had a telephone and call the police. And, you know, I was back in state's custody uh, after that. And that moment ended up being the entire difference, the entire difference for me when I realized for the first time that I got to choose. I got to decide uh, not what kind of crappy situation I was in, but I got to, to decide how I would react to my situation. 
Um, I didn't have to do what everyone else was telling me I had to do. I didn't have to do what I felt was the only thing I could do. No, I, I, I got to choose. Um, and uh, that's made all the difference. And that's the, the second chapter of the book. After I tell the kids, you can do it, whatever it is, I tell them, you have to know that you have the power to choose. Uh, and if, if you don't believe that you have the power to choose and the book's worthless, if you believe you're just a, a product of all the crap that's happened to you, then it, it's worthless. Um, you, you need to realize that you can be an agent of action as opposed to merely a reaction for other people to act upon. Um, and I'm grateful as bad as it sucked being down there uh, when I was you know, 14, I'm really grateful for it. Um, a lot of bad stuff happened down there and, and I could have bra- branched into all sorts of different roads. Um, I, my, my brother certainly did. And, um, but I'm grateful for it. If for no other reason, I had that watershed moment where I could understand for the first time in my life that I got to choose. That's one of the more powerful things that we learn in this life is that we get to choose whether or not we're a product of our history or whether or not we're, um, we're going to write that history intentionally. It's, it's our ability to, to be intentional about it. That is really an ability that we own if we choose. Yeah, that's right. My, my editor, she was like, Rob, don't these principles apply to everybody? And I was like, yeah, they do. Uh, they absolutely do. But I wanted to write a book that was directly to, to, uh, to foster kids, uh, foster kid to foster kid. I know another principle in the book that you talked about was fiercely guarding that ability to choose. Yeah. Yes. I love that idea is, you know, being intentional about guarding that, that choice, that ability to to make a choice so that you're not giving it away. And you're, you're, you're not just, you know, what's the old, uh, I think it's an old song from rush. Don't worry. I'm not going to start singing baby. (laughs) Good. She always gets nervous, (laughs) Um, but what's uh, the song? I think Tom Sawyer. um, If you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice, right? And a lot of times we feel like that if you just step back and let life happen, then you're not responsible because life happened to you rather than realizing that choosing you, you chose a road. That's right. You, you chose chaos instead of trying to, to figure out your own intentionality there. So what taught you that that was, that was the next step of it? Yeah. So, so I saw, I, I saw a handful of, of sad realities, right? I saw what, what uh, drugs and alcohol specifically were doing to, to people from, uh, from my background. And I, every, every kid needs some sort of coping mechanism. And one of the things that is so readily out there and, and when you, and when you've been traumatized and just by being in the system is to be traumatized uh, for these kids, just so the act of being removed from what you knew to be home. Uh, if even if nothing else had happened beforehand, of course, something else did, that's why you're being removed. But even if nothing else happened, there's trauma there. And, and the desire uh, when, when you feel that kind of pain is to find a way to not feel it and, and drugs and alcohol and other, other mind numbing substances, they're so attractive so that you don't have to feel, uh, that pain, uh, for a period of time, you can feel something else. And, and so, so I realized, uh, when I had this watershed moment that, and I got to choose, I needed to make sure I could make those choices. And so, so drugs and alcohol, I realized they weren't for me. Um, and uh, I had uh, siblings who full, full fledged into, uh, you know, expressing their demons through there and, and they paid for it through, through their life. 
thankfully, I, I'm not here to say that I never, never did anything like that because I did. Uh, but but uh, there was a conscious decision to step away from it and to, to not have that be a, a part of my life. I mean, uh, yeah, my kids love the fact when I tell them that I started smoking when I was eight years old. They're like, you smoked when you were eight years old? Because they don't see that. They can't imagine me, you know, I, I don't drink alcohol. I don't use drugs. Uh, I, you know, they're like, you smoked when you were eight. That's awesome. Um, but no, <laughs> it was, I, I just, I just made a choice that I needed to do that. And, and in the book, I do share a, a horrific cautionary tale. Um, and, and that's about my little brother, my little brother who was adopted. He had opportunities for stability, but he just couldn't get past the pain. And uh, he turned to, to drugs and alcohol. Uh, when he was into the partying lifestyle, uh, we were adults. He had moved back to Hawaii uh, and uh, he got really heavy in the party scene. Six months into it, he said to me, he called me up and said, Rob, here's what I'm doing. Some horrifically dangerous, dangerous lifestyle choices. And he's like, Rob, I got to get out of here. Can you help me? And my wife and I were like, yeah, sure. We don't, we don't have much, much cash, but we'll see what we can do. We got him a one-way ticket out of Hawaii to come to, with us to Utah. And uh, I, we helped him get, you know, figure out how to get an, an apartment get an education, start over the community college that had open enrollment, just get going with his life. And uh, I just said to him, I said, Hey buddy, you know, if you turn your life around right now, years from now, you're just going to look back and you're going to say that was a stupid six months of my life. That's going to be it. You, you got to turn around and you got to start doing this and you're making the right choices, getting into school uh, and, and uh, starting to progress. That's the right way to go. And, um, <clears throat> That was actually the night before I took the law school admission test. I mean, so I'm up late at night talking with my little brother, trying to help him. And finally, you know, about, uh, you know, about midnight or so, I'm like, dude, I got to go to bed. I got a test in the morning. It's really important. And so I, uh, I got, yeah, I go take the LSAT, thoroughly distracted. And uh, when I come home, he's packed up. And I'm like, what are you doing, dude? Because uh, we don't have your apartment yet. Or what's going on? He's like, I'm going back to Hawaii. It's like, what? Somehow he had scrounged enough cash to get a one-way ticket back to Hawaii. And I said, what are, you, what are you doing? What are you doing? And he said, you know, if I just, you know, party up for another year and a half, uh, then I'll look back and I'll say, that was just a dumb two years of my life. And the plan was to sow the wild oats for another year and a half, round it out to a nice even two, and then, and then turn his life around. Uh, the problem is, you know, addictions don't work that way. And he was, you know, in and out of, of, you know, um, some really tough places, hit rock bottom, tried to improve for a little bit, hit rock bottom until finally uh, the drugs took his life. And uh, when he was uh, 37 years old, uh, he never got that education started, never held down a job uh, for more than a few months. He's a good kid, a talented kid, very talented musician. Um but uh, got a bad batch of meth. Not that there's good batches of meth, but um, there are some that are worse than others. And, you know, two weeks later, uh, we found his body in his apartment. And, um, and that, uh, that was super sad. Uh, about a year, two year, year and a half or so before he died, he and I were at lunch together and we were just talking and he, he uh, talked about life, you know, how bad it sucked, you know, growing up and, and how life had changed. At that time, I had four kids and had a really successful legal career, and he was kind of spinning his wheels. 
And he said, you know, Robert, the reason why I've struggled so hard with drugs and alcohol is because of the abuse we had and because I just never got along with my adopted father. And I kind of stared at him. And I had this awkward silence for about 30 seconds. I just kind of looked him down. And he realized, like, oh, and my choices too. Like, yeah, dude, your choices, right? We had the same sort of crap that went down. Uh, you got adopted. I ended up bouncing around to 20 homes. You know, you got out at like, move number eight or something. Um, and, uh, and, but we, we, it's your choices, buddy. You got to choose, choose to do differently. And he just never could. Um, instead of turning his life around at six months, he had an opportunity. He had a choice to do that. Uh, he didn't take that off ramp and it's a lot harder to take that off ramp, you know, two years later, 15 years later and 20 years later. And ultimately he couldn't. And, uh, and, and it took his life. And so, so when I tell these kids that you need to fiercely guard your ability to choose, I tell them, listen, maybe these other kids can screw around with, you know, getting high, wasted, drunk, whatever on the weekends, but they don't have the cards stacked against them like you do. That's not for you. It's, it's not for you. You may be able to go get hammered and then turn your, you know, turn it away. You might not. You may be a, a genetic fledgling alcoholic. Uh you know, and chances are you've had that modeled for you uh, growing up of easing pain and, and trauma, you know, with substances. It can't be you. you you've you got to make the choice to not have it be a part of your life. And if you're already doing it, no problem. Uh, you can turn away from it, but you've got to choose right now to use the resources available to you as a foster child. You've got those resources to turn away from it. You, you got to do it. You do it now. And then fiercely guard that ability to choose because it's the most valuable thing you have. Absolutely. That's so powerful. Yeah. The loss of, you know, somebody losing their life because of that is, is just such a tragedy because they didn't believe that they had that choice. It's on some level usually. Yeah, that's right. I know that's um, one, one of the pictures that, that I saw in your book that really, really struck me. There's a picture there of, of I believe it's, it's his memorial and, and a sister's as well. That's right. Yeah, that, that's right. My, my older sister, uh, she took her own life. Uh, as I said, we, we all have to find ways to cope. Uh, and uh, she developed, uh, developed multiple personality disorder. Uh, I call it dissociative, dissociative personality disorder these days. Um, but yeah, multiple personalities. And uh, at age 20, uh, she, she took her own life. Wow. And so their, uh, their final, uh, they share a grave plot, uh, to, to, together. So I have to ask, I mean, you have, you have one sibling who, who had such a, a rough psychological disorder who took her own life and another sibling who, who fell off into addiction and, and ended up losing his life to that. What is it about? about your journey that, that convinced you to instead become a father, a lawyer, a successful guy, and then reach out to help other, other kids behind you who said, look, I paved the way, follow me. You know, what, what is it about you? What, what's the thing that the, puts you on that trajectory? Yeah, it, it really is that watershed moment, that understanding truly to my core that I get to choose. So if you would have looked at my grades, so that was, that was my freshman year in high school. If you would have looked at my grades for quarter one, two, and three, you would have said, there's no way this kid's going to college. There's no way. This is not, that's not the trajectory that he's on. 
I had that experience and literally overnight, I start thinking like, well, if I want to choose to not have, you know, to live in a hole like this, um, I've got to get an education. I've got to do that. And so that probably means I got to get better grades. I literally, the very next term got straight A's for the first time. Uh, and I didn't get any smarter. I didn't get, you know, get greater capacity. I just started doing the work, right? I started, all right, I got to turn on my assignments. So let's turn in the assignments. As, as I started doing the assignments, I started to understand the material. And so I started testing better. And when I didn't understand something, I made the choice to go get help. And it turns out there are a lot of people where we feel like we're alone. Uh, loneliness is almost a universal feeling that foster kids have, um, but it's, it's a fiction. Uh, we're, we're not alone. There are people there, but you have to exercise your power to choose to ask for help so frequently. And so there are people that would say, explain to me, all right, well, this is how this, you know, principle of math works uh, or history or whatever the case may be. So I started doing my assignments. I started seeking help. Uh, and as a result, I ended up doing, doing better in school. Uh, and again, no difference in capacity it was just a matter of actually turning in my assignments um, and learning the material, showing up for the tests, um, you know, being, you know, a, a little more respectful of, of uh, other people and their time uh, and, and their energies. Um, and so there's a massive turnaround really with that watershed moment. And so the, the difference between me and my siblings and because and then my older brother, he in and out of jail uh, struggled his whole life, uh, my younger brother got adopted, a different brother. Uh, he was this close to spending 16 years in prison for assaulting some officers. Similar issues. I mean, these things, uh, these things uh, follow generationally. Um, so you got to make a choice. You have to understand you can choose. And I choose to not be a victim. I choose to be a master of my own fate. Uh, and so that truly is the major difference uh, between between me and my siblings was understanding to my core that I got to choose, uh, and and uh, that made made all the difference. Now, other people stepped in and helped. There were angels all along the way. Uh, foster parents, you guys frequently are those angels, um, and so um, for me. If I were to say the second thing next to my understanding, my ability to choose um, that made a difference was my last, my second, or sorry, my last foster home. You know, uh, I'm it's at 15. I'm living, living with my best friend's family. Uh, they, you know, let me stay at their place for a bit. Um, and I realized that, oh crap, you know, I'm, I'm probably, I'm aging out of the system, right? I'm not going to have a family to call my own. Uh, so I made a choice that someday I'd make my own family, right? Uh, I'd have, I'd have, uh, you know, wife, kids, hopefully, and that would be my family. And, um, I kind of got on one of my buddies who, you know, as, as teenage boys do, uh, from time to time, uh, they, they, a bunch of guys were complaining about their families. Oh, my sister, she's such a, such a yada, 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 my mom, such a whatever. Right. Uh, and they kind of, there was end up being this kind of this little, you know, little uh, circle cuss of guys just, you know, complaining about their families. And it bugged me. It bugged me because I didn't have that. And so I told my, my, my buddy, I said, Hey man, it really bugged me that you guys were just sitting here complaining about your families. I didn't do it to the whole group. I didn't have the courage for that, but I did tell one of them. 
And I, <laughs> I said, I said that, that, that kind of blows because you guys have the one thing that I want. The one thing that I want. And bless his heart, his response was, well, Rob, if you want a family, ask God. He can give you one. What? He said, no, seriously, ask God. He can give you a family. Never had I ever kind of contemplated that. And uh, it's a very fascinating story on how that all shook out. I do see that the, the hand of providence in my life. Ultimately, I ended up the summer before my senior year with the place that my kids call grandma and grandpa. Uh, they were, um, they were those angels, uh, that were around us. Um, they had, uh, they, one of the things that were key about them being so, uh, so special is so often as a foster kid, you feel like you're a trespasser. You're in someone else's environment. You know, they have their own, their, you know, they've got biological kids, they're quote unquote, their own kids. Um, you know, and the kids have my mom and my dad, uh, and you feel like you're just a trespasser. there, not a place to call your own. Even if you're legally free for adoption, you, you, you're not necessarily a permanent fixture there and you feel that difference. You don't look like them. Uh, you know, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a, a multiracial kid. Uh, if you're with, uh, with a white family or a black family, or I don't fit in anywhere. Uh, and, and so you look different and you feel like you were a trespasser. Uh, one thing that my last foster family had that was so incredibly helpful for me is, uh, um, there, I had two nieces, two nieces. When I moved in, uh, my foster brother was on his way to medical school. Oh, I'm sorry. He was in medical school and, uh, he had two daughters, a one-year-old and a two-year-old. And they loved me. So I'm, I'm going to be a senior in high school. And I was instantly that cool uncle. And they never knew life without Uncle Rob. Right? It was never, you know, my grandma, my grandpa. You know what I mean? It was just part of the family. Uncle Rob was the fixture. When you came home for, uh, for Christmas break, when my brother came home for Christmas break, uh, medical school, the kids were there. Hey, where's our friend Rob? You know, where's, where's Rob to play with? And truthfully, those two little girls helped me feel like I belonged. Um, and, uh, and that feeling of belonging was really, really important. Uh, they also had an adopted daughter. Uh, so they had their three biological kids and they had an adopted daughter who, like me, was multiracial. And if she could fit in, and she had difficulties in her own way, uh, her own identity issues, but if she could be viewed as a valued member of their family, uh, I, I know, knew that I could as well. Uh, and so that was something that absolutely helped. Um, and so even though I was never adopted and I aged out of the system, I was never like the placement was truly intended to be a springboard into adult living. Uh, my, my, it was a favor to my social worker who was actually their next door neighbor. She was like, Hey, will you please take this kid kind of springboard him into uh, adult living? And they agreed. And so it was never intended to be a permanent home. Uh, nevertheless, it became that uh, over the years, actually, even after I aged out and um, and uh, those foster parents made made just a huge difference. And my nieces did, made a huge difference. In fact, uh, today, uh, as we've been talking, I'm getting pinged that the oldest of those girls, she just had her first baby. Um, and my family text is, is lighting up, you know, as the pictures of, of the new baby girl 
are coming out. I haven't seen it yet because I've got the video on my computer. So I'm excited to see that. So, but my, my oldest niece, uh, who is, is mentioned in the book, uh, my two oldest nieces that are mentioned in the book, they made a huge difference to me because they never knew life without me. Uh, and for them, I was always there. Do they have any idea of the impact that they had on you? Yeah, 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 they do. I mean, both of them cried when I, when I talked about them in the book, there's actually a picture in the book of me and my nieces. Um, and it, it's, it's actually one of my favorite uh, pictures that I, that I own. And it actually helps, uh, it, it actually kind of underscores why they were so important, uh, to me. And so it's a picture of me, me holding my two nieces in a bean bag, Right. And one of them sees the camera. She smiles because she's a little bit of a ham, but she's still, you know, uh, snuggled into me. The other one, not liking the camera, she's just pulling right back into me for safety, as though I was like a protector figure for them. Um, and uh, and so anyway, yeah, both of them told me that that uh, they they cried a lot because, uh, of course, I got their permission to use their names and to to use uh, to put a picture of them in the book. So, uh, they, they know that, uh, they mean the world to me and the nieces and nephews that followed same situation, uh, love them all to death. You know, I find that to be one of those interesting things. We we've got a godson who comes around a lot and it's funny. I've got teenagers in my house and teenagers aren't always known to be terribly, um, into the family stuff. Right. And when our little godson, Scotty shows up and he's, Oh, he is between six and seven months right now. So he's still a little guy. Yeah. And it's funny at, at, at such a little guy, my 15 year old son will come home from, you know, football or whatever. I've actually had him come home still in pads, you know, the big, bad football player mentality walks in the room and he sees the baby. And it's funny how it, it seems to melt the hearts of just about everyone. Yeah. 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 The yeah. first thing out of his mouth is, Oh, can I hold him? I yeah. just smile because I know that, that, that that's always seems to be such a, a beneficial thing for whatever reason, you know, everybody loves babies. Well, so again, with, with these kids from hard places, we're missing human connection. We've had human connection. That's been um, faulty. That's been toxic and, or has been severed. Right. So there is a need for that human connection. Uh, and uh, for, for me, my, my nieces, you know, did that. My sister, my, my foster sister uh, ended up being that human connection where you can belong. And it's, it's, it's vitally important. Uh, one of the things that I tell foster parents um, is, is that to underscore the good that they can do. Uh, I'm not sure if this is the same way in every state, but in our state, when you're getting licensed, they have a questionnaire, right? Among all the tons of paperwork to do, but they have a questionnaire of what you'd be willing to accept into your home, uh, right? You know, what kind of trauma, what kind of background, you know, kids that, you know, have been sexually abused, you know, are they sexually reactive, all these different things, right? And uh, my wife was the driving force for us to be, be foster parents. Um, I wasn't pushing it uh, at, at all, but she felt like we could, we, we could do some good there, especially with my background. And so as she's going through that list and seeing all these different things, you know, the baggage that, that foster kids come from, she's like, Ooh, Oh shoot. Mm, and so I probably not willing to do this. Probably not willing to do this. I could do this. I could handle this. Probably not willing to do this. And, and I said to her, um, as she was finishing up, I said, uh, honey, I'm not going to not wanting to change your mind on, on any of this, but you do realize that's the way you filled that out would have disqualified you from being a foster parent to me. 
And she's like, oh, that's a good point. So even these kids who have ACE scores of seven, eight, nine, ten, who've been through some really, really crappy stuff, they can still turn out to be very, very, very meaningful parts of families, uh, meaning, you know, very, very productive, productive members of society. And so when I, when I talk to foster parents that are in training, I do caution them. I just say, listen, you know, before you start knocking off things that you can't accept into, into your life, you don't think you'd be able to handle it. Now understand that, you know, a bunch of those lists, you would, would have been saying no to me. Um, and not that I'm you know, all that or whatever, uh, but I know that my foster family, they're really, really grateful that they said yes to uh, their next door neighbor uh, to take in this you know, very, very troubled, uh, you know, senior in high school um, because, uh, because these kids, they, every last one of them have potential, uh, potential to have real meaningful human connection. Uh, and so notwithstanding the crap that they've been through, uh, and you have to be careful, you have to be smart. There's no question about that. Uh, but notwithstanding all the crap that they've been through, uh, you foster parents have an opportunity to make a very real meaningful difference in these kids' lives to have that meaningful connection that otherwise uh, they may be deprived of. Yeah. Yeah. We, we have the same questionnaire we filled out as well. So I know what you're talking about. I think that's probably, probably a, a federal deal, but um you know, I did have one other, one other quick question. I'm a, I'm a member of a dad's group that if you listen to the podcast for five minutes, you'll hear me talk about it. And one of the things that I found though, in, in these moments of talking to, to other dads and men who've been through, through their own bucket of stuff in life is that the father wound runs so deep and it's almost ubiquitous. It's just so common. How does, how does that played out in your life? And have you and your father found a way to reconcile that difference over the years? Uh, yeah. So, so one of the benefits of, of understanding that you get to choose uh, is that I get to choose, like I said, whether I'm going to be a victim or not, and I'm not going to let all this history victimize uh, me. And so I was absolutely willing to have uh, a relationship with my father uh, going on. Uh, and there, there had to be some boundaries. I remember, uh, he called me when I was in college and said, Hey, I want to let you know, I got married. I was like, Oh, that's great. When'd you get divorced? Cause last time I knew you were, you know, on your third <laughs> wife. Right. And, yeah. um, and, uh, so I want you to meet her. All right. Yeah, no problem. And so when I go to meet, meet her, she's a lovely, lovely woman. And, um, but she started kind of going at me. My father was talking to some of my buddies at, in the dorms. And uh, she started going at me. She's like, you know, it's a real tragedy what happened to your family. Kind of going on what we talked about earlier on, that we are these victims. And uh, and, I, and I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not sure what you mean by that. She's like, well, you know, it was, it was you know, just kind of a conspiracy for the state to take you away. So basically, he, she was reciting everything my father had fed her years later, right? This is years after his rights had been terminated, years after his children had been adopted. Uh, his oldest daughter had already committed suicide uh, or in that family. I guess he had a daughter from a previous marriage, you know, so the crap had happened, right? And it, years had gone by. And, uh, and that was still the story that he was in telling his new wife. And, and I was stable enough in who I was and the relationship. I just said, you know, it's, that's, that's not true. It, it was it was a good reason we were taken away. And she pushed back. She's like, no, no, it really wasn't. And so I just said to my father, I called my name, said, hey, tell your wife how I got this scar. 
And his response was like, oh, well, you remember, I didn't really kick you down the hall more. I kind of lifted you off the ground with my foot. And as you remember, right, it was ironclad. It was the first time his wife had seen this. And uh, so they probably had uh, some hard discussions and stuff. And he had to he had to kind of own up to who who he had been. Um, and uh, but the, I was OK with that. You know, so long as we understood each other, we could go and have a relationship. It wouldn't be the kind of father son relationship that that you want, because that's really forged when a child needs that protection, needs that guidance. And if you don't have that, then you don't end up having that that kind of forge. But you can have a, a, a relationship. And so, so for a number of years, we did have, have a, a bit of a relationship. Uh, when my kids came into the picture, it changed a little bit, uh, a, a lot bit actually, um, because uh, then I, I make a choice to, you know, whether I'm going to protect my children uh, from, from certain things. And so we don't have much of a relationship now. Um, and truthfully, actually, when my oldest was born, I kind of had like, you know, kind of a triggering event like this. Uh, kind of reliving trauma all over again. I'm already at this point, a fairly successful person. Uh, I'm married. I have a degree in finance. I'm in law. I'm heading to law school. Right. So I'm, I'm on, on the track. Right. But then my son was born and I had just this incredible love and devotion. This child realized I would do anything. I would do anything for my son. And then I realized that my father wouldn't. Uh, wouldn't or couldn't. And it hurt. Like, again, it's like, oh man, he must not have felt like I do for this kid uh, towards me. Or if he did, he felt that other things were more important. And, and it was, it was hard. That, that was, that was a hard thing. Um, but nevertheless, like I said, you get to choose. You, you say, all right, I, I recognize that. And listen, I need, I need grace given to me for my kids all the time. I will be happy to dish out grace to other people um, because I need it for my kids. Uh, and, uh, and so it was cool. So we, we were cool with each other. Um, and, uh, but, but the, um, there was you know, some interactions that, that weren't healthy for the kids. So, so that isn't a continuous ongoing relationship. And I feel bad that I don't feel bad about it um, because I think I should feel bad about it. But the reality is, is, is those kids are, are so much more important uh, to me. Um, because that relationship, the way it was supposed to be, uh, is what I have with my kids. Um, you know, my, uh, my, yeah, my kids, are my world, uh, I, I love them to death. My, my greatest memories in my life, the most treasured memories I have are one-on-one times with, with my kids, family vacations with everyone is great, but I'm like the stereotypical dad and wife that always pissed off, you know, because, you know, I'm hurting five kids and you guys are, you know, range from, you know, adults down to a one-year-old and this sucks. Um, but when it's just us one-on-one, it's awesome. Maybe two-on-one, it's awesome. You it's know, awesome. It, it's, it's amazing what we will do for our kids. And it's also amazing the, the boundaries we will put in place for our kids. That's right. You know, you're, you're like, you know, this might've been okay for me to accept in my life, but mm, you're not going to do it in front of my kids. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and, and when, when you're uh, as an adult and you can maintain your own boundaries and your own sense of self, uh, so long as you can do that, then you can have a relationship even with someone who's less, less healthy. Um, but your children have a harder time with that, you know? Um, and, and, well, uh, and children, they internalize. And even if it's not their fault, they, they like to think that it is. Oh, so much so. Yeah, so much so. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think what you're showing there is the ability to break that generational cycle because that happens so often, you know, where you see somebody who's an abuser, you know, it might be an interesting study. I don't know about your particular case, you know, your dad's situation, but it would be interesting to maybe know a bit about his childhood and see if he's not just perpetuating what he knew and what he grew with. And sure. if that's the case, that's the generational cycle that you're breaking. That's right. And uh, again, I know it's not like a broken record, but you have to choose to do that. You have to recognize it. And, and again, that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, everything's all, you know, roses and cheerfulness and all that. No, it, it doesn't mean that uh, trauma takes its toll. It's, it's real. It's real. And, and so I tell these kids, listen, you go get, get the help that you need to go break those cycles. Now go deal with, with the traumatic experiences in, in your life. Uh, I've used those as a kid being forced to go into, to, into therapy and as an adult, as a fully functioning, you know, very, very strong career oriented top of my game in my field kind of guy. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to go work on that because that's important to me that I don't pass that stuff on, on my kids. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I tell, tell kids all the time, listen, I hate when I remember I hated therapy. I hated the fact that I had to go uh, to therapy on a weekly and a monthly basis. It, I felt stigmatized by it. Uh, I, I just hate it. And I have a completely different view. And so if I can pass on to the foster kids, uh, how awesome uh, it can be to get some, some good, solid uh, trauma-based therapy to, to, to break those cycles, you do take advantage of that. Um, and, and there's absolutely no shame in it. I didn't learn that really that lesson until a little bit later on. I literally failed a full semester of college, a full semester of college, uh, because I was ashamed to ask for help uh, a little bit later on. Even after, you know, learning these lessons, the ability to choose and everything, I developed uh, a, 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 you know, had, uh, I was diagnosed as hypercyclic bipolar, a hypercyclic manic depression. Uh, my second year of college, uh, I always had sleep issues, but it got really, really bad. Like, like crazy bad. Uh, I would sleep, you know, maybe one to two hours a night uh, for several weeks in a row uh, where I just couldn't shut my brain. I just couldn't sh just shut up the voices in my head. Uh, it just wouldn't stop. And so I would just get so tired and then I'd crash because your body can't do that. Right. Go on no sleep. The longest I went with zero sleep, I woke up Monday morning at six o'clock in the morning and I wasn't able to fall asleep until Thursday at 10 o'clock at night, 1030 at night. And I felt like I was going to go insane. My body is screaming for sleep, but I couldn't until finally your body crashes. And then I would be, be out for no real social interaction, sleeping for 20 to 22 hours a day. Uh, you can't do college that way. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I'd have these cycles where at my at the beginning of my wake portion of the cycle, I'm super productive. I catch up as much as I can. And then and then when you get to like the second week of no sleep, you're still awake, but things kind of you're looking through a get glass darkly and everything's foggy. And it gets to the point where it just hurts just to keep your eyes open. Uh, and especially because you're trying to pretend to everyone that no that there's nothing wrong. And that takes its toll. And then you crash again. And by the time I was on my third crash uh, during the semester, I, I, I failed everything. I completely failed an entire semester. Um, and uh, and and uh, it was, you know, my parents, my foster parents, like the, you know, the place, my last foster home. They, I was living away, but they knew something was wrong. There was enough contact that they knew something was wrong. Didn't know that much. And they were like, afterwards, they're like, 
are you an idiot? Why did you ask for help? Right. (laughs) You know, it's just stupid. Get some help. And so I I went and got some help and there, you know, it was a hard thing for me to, you know, for them to say, listen, Rob, there's something broken with your brain and listen, given your background and your family genetics, it's not surprising, uh, but it's okay. You know, would you be ashamed? This is what the doctor said. Would you be ashamed uh, if you had diabetes to take some insulin? Would you be ashamed of getting a cast on if your leg was broken? So don't be ashamed of taking medication to help you know manage these these cycles and it helped me change that uh, that's that stigma. Um, I, I do share that with the kids as well when I talk about education. Uh, I I was not a stellar student and I literally failed literally failed a full semester of college and yet nevertheless uh, was able to, to to get a solid education for my, for my family. Um, that's 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 important to tell. My 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 son in college just had a rough semester and he was really bugged. And he has not read my book. And so I did tell him, I said, remember, I started high school with these grades, boom, 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 not great grades. And then I failed an entire semester of college. So don't worry, buddy. It's not the end of the world. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, man, it's great to have you on here today and to tell your story and show these kids that, that, man, there's tough stuff in their past, but that doesn't mean the future is bleak. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's right. Anything I can do to help, help kids really see that and then to feel that uh, is, is what I'm trying to do. So I, I appreciate that's the important part is feeling it. That's right. That's right. So I appreciate everything you guys are doing. Uh, I love, I love what you're doing and I appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah. It's, thank it's, you so much. Yeah. It's, it's our, our advantage here to have somebody like you to, to give these kinds of stories and this kind of wisdom to kids who, who otherwise might not find these kind of things because it's not really out there very much. So, so thanks a lot for spending your time and your energy trying to help kids. Yep. You got it. Thanks so much, you guys. Okay. Foster care nation. Thank you for listening to Rob's story. Now take his knowledge and wisdom to heart so that you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have a new episode every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can catch us at fostercareuj at gmail.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. Don't forget, we have a Patreon where you can support our mission for as little as $5 a month. It's at patreon.com slash fostercarenation. The links to everything are in the show notes or on your podcast player, or you can find them at fosterCareNation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. Thanks, thanks, thanks.